Hello and welcome to the podcast. This week I'll be discussing the newly merged BBC News channels with a presenter who knows what's going on behind the PR. And I'll ask Simon McCoy whether he really did fall asleep in the middle of a bulletin and whether, as a self-confessed Brexiteer and asked to quote him, no BBC lefty, he thinks BBC News is impartial. But first a quick catch-up on BBC News in general. The cuts in local radio started to bite this week, with presenters being told if they had a job anymore, many will not have. Nearly 50 rules will be made redundant under the BBC management's cost-saving plans for local radio stations. They will involve sharing programmes across wider regional areas on afternoons and weekdays. The presenters say they've been given 60 seconds to pitch to keep their jobs in a form of speed-dating-style interviews. Have their bosses not been listening to their own output? A former controller of BBC English Regions, Andy Griffey, wrote on Twitter, quoting a BBC statement which says, The changes see no reduction in funding or overall staffing levels across our 39 local bases in England. Andy Griffey commented, I assume sarcastically, I find it staggering that a core service like Radio Bristol will share with three other stations at weekends and lose such presenters due to a deliberate decision unforced by cuts. A BBC spokesperson said many of the presenters losing their shows will continue to present on local radio at the end of this process in new roles, but we appreciate change like this is really difficult and we are supporting our teams closely through this. BBC England journalists have voted to strike next week in protest at the cuts. The day they've chosen is Friday, May the 5th, and that may wipe out coverage of the results of the previous day's local elections across radio and regional TV bulletins. Well, this week I'm looking at the impact of a change that the BBC has made, the merging of its two news channels. I'm delighted to be joined by Simon McCoy, former BBC journalist known as a regular presenter on BBC Breakfast, News 24, and latterly the BBC News at One. He was at the corporation for 17 years, before briefly joining GB News for just under a year in 2021. Simon McCoy, welcome to the podcast. Now, I'm talking to you at 9.30 in the morning, uh, and after your time presenting early morning news shows, does it feel like the afternoon to you? It feels like I've got my life back. Uh, I, I, I mean, I did breakfast on various channels, starting at Sky, uh, ending up with GB News, uh, over a sort of 10-year period. And anybody who's done it will understand there's that moment where you suddenly realise you're, you're not living the life that other people are living. You know, that, that lunchtime is actually dinner, and that's when y- you relax. And, and evenings disappear, and it's even evenings at weekends, because you, you finish work, say, on a Friday morning, and just when you're beginning to feel normal again on Sunday, it's time to go to bed again. So it, it's a weird existence, and I, I have to say, I, I think I've had my fill of it. So what time were you going to bed then, normally, when you were doing a breakfast show? Oh, as, as a rule of thumb, I made sure I was in bed by eight. And particularly in the early days, you, you, you treated lunch as a, as a celebration. So you tended to pass out at eight o'clock in the evening rather than go to sleep at eight o'clock in the evening. So, <laughs> um, so uh, What time did the alarm go in the morning then? 3.15 for me, because there was always a bit of travel involved in getting to the office. And you need to be there a good good hour and a half, two hours, I think, beforehand. Mostly for makeup, actually, at that time of the day. But uh, you've got to get across things, and that every morning used to present a, a different sort of challenge. So yes, the early mornings I do not miss. 
uh, were you assiduous at getting to bed at 8 o'clock? I ask you only because on one famous occasion, the camera cut you at 8.30 in the morning, your head was on your desk, and it was disgracefully... I was not asleep. Disgracefully suggested. I was yeah, asleep. No. I know. I know it was, and I wasn't. I mean, apart from anything else, I suspect that's a sackable offence anyway, and my boss was, was fairly convinced that, that, that I hadn't fallen asleep. I think at the time, I, it was one of those bizarre moments where BBC Breakfast crosses over to you when you're on the news channel that time of day, just, just to sort of promote what's coming up. And uh, a, direct, a director just made a very poor joke, and I, and I, was, I was banging my head against the desk, and, and they just happened to cut at the wrong moment. But uh, it, it, was, it went viral, and that's at the time all bosses seemed to care about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the right, yes, the right time, in other words. Um, how difficult is the job? I mean, I spend most of my life behind the camera. Um, and, behind, you know, did, and when I've done live programming, it's on radio, nobody can see me, and it's at a reasonable time of day. And also, it was with a script. Uh, events were not likely to change what I was doing. So how difficult a job is it to, to be a news presenter on a rolling news channel where you, you are the first to react have to be the first to react to something you don't understand the scale of. It's not as easy as it should look, because that's your job, is to try and look calm at all times. It, it is that, that the old swan adage, you know, you're, you're looking at something reasonably calm, whereas under the water there's all hell breaking loose. The reason I loved the job was that the buzz of the breaking news story, and over the years I've, I've covered quite a few, and you, you're sort of living it. If you're really interested in news and the story, it's second nature in a way just to always want to know, well, what, what, what does that mean? What's happening? What, who should we be speaking to next? It, it's that journalistic instinct that people see live in front of them on the television, which I think is part of the draw of 24-hour news, actually. You're, you're seeing under the bonnet. You're seeing how, how the process works. And in a way, paradoxically, you want a crisis, don't you? There must be days when you're doing the channel when you think, I've done this story four, five, six times, I'm bored out of my life, I want a crisis, because then, in a sense, you as the presenter, I mean, lots of other people are backing you up, mm. but in then, you are the face of the channel, if you make a mistake, everybody knows. Yeah, I have to say, most days, there was, there, there was always something to, to keep you reasonably busy. I mean, particularly over the last few years, whether, whether it's politics, I mean, I, I was on during the pandemic, and, and uh, there, there are some stories that, become very wearing because, like everybody watching, you know everybody's very depressed by what they're watching. They're, they're watching you for signs of hope, and if you're not offering it, then after a while you, you become as depressed as they do. But uh, on serious breaking stories like, like terrorist attacks, something we were doing quite regularly at one time, you're aware of that responsibility that people are tuning in because they know something's happened. They want you to just bring them up to speed with, with what has happened and to gauge how serious it is. And, and, and going to your earlier point, yes, it's, it's quite difficult, I think, to reflect necessarily how, how big a story is. But I think with experience, you can see in, in someone's face on television. This is why television news for me is it will always be slightly more informative you can see in people's faces a, a look of shock or horror or real concern that that this story is much much bigger than you might be thinking at, at first look but are you one of these people who go calm in a crisis because some people uh, well i'm vain gloriously talking about myself really as an editor <laughs> i went calm, calm in a crisis but afterwards i sometimes very occasionally you cry and go to pieces but something happened when the thing story was doing, and you went cold and you went calm and you went through it, and you almost suspended your emotions. I, th I think that's absolutely right. And I, I, I think some people treat 
different stories differently, obviously. But uh, the, the ones I always used to find the most difficult were, were the ones that you were preparing for. You know, if it was a, a royal coronation or whatever, I used to find the homework for that quite, you know, quite tough. You had to cram all this information in your head and, and have it available. Whereas with a breaking story, you're living on your wits. You're living on the people around you. And, uh, you know, production teams are, well, were at the BBC um, <laughs> a- able to... Uh, respond in, in amazing ways. So you, you've got in your ear all the time, after, after the initial sort of five minutes where where everybody's sort of scrabbling around. Yeah, they're scrabbling around and they're saying to you while they're scrabbling around, just hurry, just keep going, just keep going. And they're not, uh, eventually they support you with masses, but for those first few minutes, you just have to keep talking, do you? Well, the, the BBC certainly. I mean, uh, uh, I, when I was at GB News, you, you would, it was 20 minutes keep talking before anybody turned up on a phone line that worked. So, you know, th- th- there are degrees of, 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 of that panic reaction. Uh, the BBC certainly, yes, that initial panic. But that, that is the moment where I think you're also aware that people at home have a choice of what they're going to watch. And at that point, they're flicking over, they're checking. Well, what's BBC got? What's Sky got? What are the other channels doing? Doing on this, and if they can see someone who's just calmly and responsibly telling you something you don't want to hear, but you need to know what's going on, uh, that's the difference. And I, that's why I think BBC News was, was absolutely the, the place to go for a, for a period of time. Well, we'll pick up that thought about the future of BBC News or the present of BBC News in a moment, but I can't let you go of this section of the interview without uh, remarking on the fact that most of the audience did feel you have a sense of mischief and sometimes were bored. And there's a famous occasion when you were covering the, shall we say, the non-arrival of Prince George. And you said at some point, well, the news is, there is no news. <laughs> on twenty-four hour news, that's the case a lot of the time, isn't it? Oh my! Did you get reprimanded for that? It was interesting, Roger. The the reaction to that one, the the news channel bosses thought it was great because I think we all felt the same. You know, uh, 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 she's gone into labour. Your your heart drops. You just know what what's coming, and you hope that she's she's got a great obstetrician who will make it as quick as possible. When I got back uh, after that story, and having said that, there was an interesting reaction. I got clapped by the Radio 4 newsreaders. They were thrilled. The radio bosses thought this was great because, uh, well, I don't know, maybe they realised it, it might do damage to TV, but because uh, there is always, as you know, intense rivalry. But the more po-faced BBC managers were not impressed at all. And over the following days, it, it did spark a massive debate about actually what is 24-hour news for? And on stories like that, what should you do? I mean, I lost the will to live when I heard Kay Burley two steps down uh, speculating on the level of dilation. And I, and I thought at that point, you know, what am I doing here? What, what are we doing here? And what, what are people switching on wanting to hear? But you often get the situation, I know it's on BBC News, where a correspondent or maybe the political editor gives a really quite a, you know, succinct good piece for two and a half minutes. And then insist on cutting to him live asking him questions uh, as he's already answered in his previous piece. Uh, that always baffled me. Well, they're still doing that. That is still going on. I watched the, the, the news at 10 recently, and, and they'll have Sarah Smith, the North America editor, live at the end of a package, where she's sort of commenting on what she's just said. And, and the thing is, I think the public are much more savvy about how we operate than, than we think they are. They know how television works. You know, if they want to talk to their aunt in Washington, D.C. over a phone and see her live, they can do it now. There is no magic to it. And I, I think perhaps we need to be a little more aware that the magic we think we're delivering is not magic at all. Can I take you back to us uh, earlier in your career? Actually, our paths briefly crossed when you were at Thames News and I was mm. at uh, this week, but you went on to Sky and you were the, 
the Royal Correspondent, I think, from 91 to 96. And then, of course, subsequently moved to the BBC and continued to cover royal issues. Is there a real difference between the way Sky covers royalty and the BBC does? There certainly was at the beginning when I started. I, I joined Sky when it started, so everything was, was new. There, there wasn't, a, at that time, there wasn't a, a political pool rotor system, and, and having a royal correspondent actually was important to Sky to get that all rolling. And we were put on the royal rotor when we were a very new channel, and, and to the credit of the Queen's press secretary at the time, Charles Anson, and, and her private secretary, it, it, it was thought, no, Sky's going to be here for a while, so, so they need to be part of the system. And the BBC and ITV at the time were not happy about that. But, but we felt uh, in the early days, well, 1991, when I was appointed royal correspondent, everybody, everybody was saying, oh, you're going to be travelling the world with the Queen, sending back lovely pictures. Within a year, it was the lead story seven days a week because of the Charles and Diana marriage issue in, of 92. So it became a, a massive story. Now, what, what we did at the time was we treated it as a royal story. I remember my then colleague at the BBC, Jenny Bond, they, they sort of cheated a bit because they regarded it as a media story. You'd have Jenny standing next to a photographer saying, tut, 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 look at this. This is the media interest in a story that, that's in the tabloids. Oh, this caught the BBC off the hook. So the BBC, OK, we're not covering it, but we're just, of course, reporting what other outlets are saying. That's um, a Which bit drove dishonest. me mad. Yeah, yeah absolutely disingenuous, isn't it? Yeah, you know, we're all doing the same thing. The agenda was totally driven then by the tabloid press. We knew nothing about phone hacking in those days. We had no idea where many of the stories were coming from. We were reacting to it, and I think Sky very much led the way at the time in, no, this is a big story, this is what people are talking about, this is what they want to see news about. So I think we gave the BBC at the time a bit of a kick. But you haven't got the problem the BBC's got, and actually David Dimbleby told me about this, who's remarkably critical in many ways about the BBC's approach to, to in journalistic approach to the royal family. The BBC's sort of stuck. Part of it feels... Our job is to support the institution. We ourselves, the BBC, are an institution, so we cover coronations, we do all of that, we're basically supportive. And then there's the journalistic function, which is saying, whoops, hold on a second, we're supposed to be journalists here, and we're also supposed to reflect Republican views and other things. And the BBC is capable of doing the splits. Meanwhile, the palace has a similar problem. On the whole, or rather, certainly members of its royal family, hate the press, but they need it and they want it. So everybody's a bit screwed up, isn't it? Uh, did you feel freer at Sky reporting on the royal family than you did in the BBC? No, well, I'll tell you honestly, Roger, I, at no point in, in my 18 years at the BBC did I ever feel there was a view I was supposed to take. No one ever told me what to say. No one ever said, oh, well, you shouldn't say that. You know, I think a lot of people might be surprised at that. And it was the same at Sky. Everybody assumed, oh, Murdoch, you know, he's a, he, he hates the monarchy and Sky's here to bash it. I was never once advised on what line to take. The only ever time someone stormed the newsroom, it was Kelvin McKenzie, was their managing director at, at Sky, who, who came in and there was some Charles and Diana story, and he said, this is a big story. And, and I, he was the former editor of The Sun, yeah, of course. In, yeah, in, in, indeed. And... Um, I remember going into a total panic. I, I went to our assignments desk uh, and, and said, look, send a camera crew to Beecham Place in Knightsbridge. Diana often goes shopping there. Just tell them to film some shops and we can, we can describe what sort of spending she's doing. And, and within 20 minutes, fortunately, we had a crew in the area. They'd unpack their case. They'd set the camera up. And what happens? A car pulls up and out gets Diana and goes into a shop. And, and we've got vision, you know, and, and any vision of Diana off the rotor system doing daily things was very rare. To do it on that day 
Well, well it, I'm sure it saved my job. It certainly meant that Kelvin McKenzie knew who I was, which I didn't think he did the day before. <laughs> but we are, we are confused. BBC is really confused about the, about the Royal Family. I remember when I was in my early days as an editor, there was somebody in BBC, in, I think attached to outside broadcast, who was the royal liaison mm-hmm. figure. And you were supposed to go through that figure in order to talk to the palace at all. We didn't in the end. But also David Dimbleby told me that, 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 that it's still the case that on the television coverage of... Uh, live major events whereas the coverage of course is just done the palace holds the Mm -hmm. rights to the edited material of a national broadcast i mean that's quite extraordinary isn't it well it's one of those things that can't go on for for much longer i wouldn't have thought the problem for the royals uh, is and i always equate this to say rolls royce produce their their newest model but but doesn't have any wheels so it doesn't actually go I, i think you're as good as the product and if your product is a family that is ostensibly dysfunctional there's a limit to how long you can go on without saying so and um i've still got the press association news flash uh, uh, buckingham palace today denied her a sky tv report that the marriage of the prince and princess of wales is in trouble that, that that's charles and diana which i have with some pride and, and the bbc were very very sniffy they knew just as i did that the marriage was in serious trouble but this pretense went on and on but I don't think that would happen now. I, I, we're talking about the early 90s, and I do think things have changed. We've, we've got social media, which, let's face it, is driving so much of the news agenda, for, certainly for 24-hour news, in a way that was unthinkable 20 years ago. So people get their news essentially digitally, and they need, if they're going to actually go to television, they need you to add something. Well, you add pictures. Well, they need you to verify, Roger. I think... I, I think and, and this is important, I think people will switch on the telly to see, well, is that right? Is that true? Because you know as well as I do, the issue of trust, I think, is the biggest challenge for every journalist, for every news deliverer at the moment. And, and um, it's always been the case, as far as we were told, that the BBC was was the channel that people would go to just to check that what they were hearing elsewhere was right. I'm, I'm not sure if that's true now or if it's going to remain true. But should people trust the BBC? I noticed that you said at one point, you said on the, in this interview that you never leaned on in a particular way or whatever, but you also said in the past, I'm not a lefty BBC journalist, I voted for Brexit. <laughs> Were you then suggesting, you know, the BBC journalists tend to lean to the left or just that's the perception of the particularly conservative media? Yeah, I, I got sick and tired of the perception. I, uh, and, the, you know, the BBC is an easy hit uh, and will always attract criticism from all sides. But, and, of course, there are those that say, well, that just shows it's doing its job properly, which, which, is, which is a fair response. There is this perception about BBC journalists, or, or was then, that they, were, they tended to be to the left. And, and after this interview goes out, people say, oh, there he goes again. But I, I think it is important to stress that individual journalists, as far as I ever saw, and I was there 18 years... We're not leaned on. Now, that's different from Westminster and, and the Westminster setup, which I think, and I've, I, I heard and I still hear stories where uh, sometimes reporters were told to, to do things differently, whether they liked it or not. But, I mean, you're referring on the one hand probably to the suggestion that a member of BBC board would have lent on or suggested that people pay particular attention to what Number 10 has been saying. Mind you, I remember that from the Tony Blair area. Well, yeah, it was ever thus. And also in Westminster, you're exchanging information, aren't you, in a certain way. You hold on to stories if somebody will give you another story. It's a complex deal, isn't it, there? I think that's right. And um, at the end of the day... 
as long as you've got the story essentially right, no damage to the trust has been done. As you say, it is very complicated. Westminster, the BBC's Westminster office is large. It, it is complex. It works so hard to, to try that to, the horrible word, impartiality, but to try to be impartial. And, you know, the truth is, Roger, you cannot be 24 hours, uh, seven days a week, totally impartial. Things will sometimes go wrong. But uh, yeah, and, uh, but the and thing about impartiality is due impartiality, isn't it? You don't know, you know, when something's clearly black and white. I mean, one thing that irritated me, for example, is sometimes when you in news are reporting on something where obviously one side is wrong and the other side is correct on a factual matter, the temptation still is to say, well, they say this, they say that. And yes. you thought, no, you're the journalist, you know, you're paid. Tell me where it's possible to establish the facts, what the facts are. Sometimes impartiality can drive people to being saying, you know, well, I'm not going to contradict somebody who says two and two equals five. And that was a massive problem during the whole Brexit debate. And I, I, I think we, we were offering a disservice in many ways because we, we we tied ourselves in knots to try and give we equated impartiality and fairness with time if you've given one side five minutes you're gonna to have to give someone else five minutes well that's not how it's ever going to work but as a result the whole the whole arguments got out of kilter i, I feel you speak as somebody who did vote for brexit yeah. yes and and we are where we are and i was not alone in voting for brexit even at the bbc i suspect do you think it indicates also the limitations of news in this sense that brexit argument was essentially about the past and the present and it wasn't about the future and in a sense, if you leave an organisation like the European Union, it's a twofold decision. One, do you want to leave because you're unhappy? But second question ought to be, what are we leaving for? And that nags at me as mainly a current affairs man in the past, that that's what we didn't do. We did a disservice to the public, not because we weren't impartial, but because it doesn't explore what will, as it were, an independent, if you can use that term, UK look like. It was the same, I think, in the earlier about the Scottish debate, the SNP debates earlier. The argument is always on the action and today, with no questions about what happens tomorrow. And, and I think that was a weakness of politicians too. Uh, you, you look at David Cameron and George Osborne at the time, who were so confident and arrogant in thinking it wasn't going to happen. There was no planning done at all. It, should it happen? And, and we're still paying the price for that. You know, it seems to caught many people by surprise that the vast, well, the majority of the British public had felt strongly enough that there was something wrong with the system, that it needed changing. I mean, I personally feel that a lot of those who voted Brexit were, were, were just really angry with, with the, the government at the time, their attitude at the time, a, a perceived arrogance of, of that particular regime and um they, they paid the price and but you're suggesting that there isn't a fundamental problem with impartiality and yet under the present bbc shall we say a regime however we describe it under both uh, richard sharp and uh, t tim davy they've made a great emphasis on impartiality and i read that partly as uh, yes just to you know the government's obsessed by it reassure them we're doing everything possible but on the other hand and i don't think my own experience was there's not a fundamental problem but i do think there may be a generational problem there may be young people coming into journalism who do expect to be able to express their views. And now that's always been a bit of the case, hasn't it? Oh, now th th this is a really interesting one. And, and, and this was, you know, we, we now have, uh, I, I won't say echo chambers, but you've, you've got Talk TV, you've got GB News, you've got places where journalism is now about opinion. And uh, my switch from the BBC to GB News and 
I've heard this also from people who've gone from the BBC to say LBC, that, that BBC chip that you have inserted on impartiality and, and you mustn't express a view, it, it takes a long time for that to be removed because it, bec- it becomes a very natural state. You, you are constantly in your own head saying, well, yeah, I, I can hear that they're saying that and, and, and that makes complete sense to me. But there must be another side to this. Is that why your stay on GB News was relatively short-lived? That's a fair assessment. There were other issues with that. I mean, when the idea was first mooted and when I first had chats with them, it promised to be a very exciting new news channel. And it had some very impressive people, apart from Andrew Neil, behind the scenes, there were some very impressive people. uh, John McAndrew, who now is Deborah Tennessee's number two at the BBC News Department, and Jill Pennington, seriously good senior producers in, in television news. And there was, a, 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 at the time... And they and, all and left. They, and they, they all left. They left, not of their own volition, quite quickly. And the way they were dealt with was, for me, one of the reasons I thought this isn't necessarily a place I can say. And then I was never aware of, of the involvement of people like Nigel Farage at the start of GB News. And I, I think, you know, once it became clear just how influential he was within the organisation, you could see where that, that was probably going to go. And, and that's not a criticism. So does that mean, and, and it's fair enough to have talk shows or whatever, but they are talk shows, and you'd make a distinction between that and a news organisation committed at least to try to be impartial? Well, I, I, I do accept GB News did eventually, and they, they should have done it from day one, they, they do offer a news service, they do do news, and during the uh, they've got a breakfast channel with uh, Eamon Holmes and Isabel Webster, which is, uh, I mean, I, I regard much of their news as sort of Sky News light, if you like, partly because they all seem to have been at Sky News. But um, the, 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 they are endeavouring to inject news bulletins, which are as impartial as anyone else. You know, they're, they're straight news reads with pictures. Mm. You've still got that chip, I think you've still got, not the chip on your shoulder, the chip <laughs> inside you, the impartiality chip inside you you talked about. It's still worth fighting for that. Absolutely. Because you're, because you, you're going to lose that at other organisations because eventually, and, and look, well, look at what's happening, GB News has an audience, Talk TV doesn't necessarily so much, but whilst they exist and whilst it, it, it works for them, that's a format that's going to work. Work, and I spend a lot of time in the United States. And you know th- this word "streaming," which which drives me potty. But all the news channels there are now streamed, and it's incredibly repetitive. You, you'll see the same bulletin run time and time again, and with constant ads and constant clips of reporters saying why they love their jobs and how good they are at it. And and it becomes rather rather tedious. And it become echo chambers too, because I mean, as has been. Clear, obviously, looking at what happened with the Fox in the States. Executives and presenters knew one thing, knew the lies that were being told about the election by the president and went on screen, as it were, and or in front of the uh, microphone and, as it were, supported those lies for purely commercial reasons. It's business. Because they knew it was rating. It was ratings. Yes, absolutely. And the more outlandish their claims became, the more they realised, my word, people like this. Oh, God, I hope we don't go down that road. But um, we're at the junction, let's say, as, of the motorway and we're thinking maybe pulling off. <laughs> but but, but that, and the BBC the BBC's got a crucial in that not happening. 
Well, let's look at the, if we like, finally at the, at the BBC and this amalgamation of news channels. Now, the B- BBC is not in a situation it would have liked to have been. It's had a financial straitjacket put in. The licence fee has been frozen for two years. It's having to make choices. We might all disagree with those choices, and certainly in the music area, they, uh, there's a great disagreement. But and, and given that news had to cut something, are there real dangers in combining the two news services now into one, a channel which says that it's world news and it's also domestic news at the same time? Can you do both successfully all the time? Well, I'll start by saying it's early days, and it's only ostensibly going for a few weeks and they keep saying this is going to be a slow process rather than a revolution it's going to be evolutionary but talk about merging the channels was live while I was there for many many years and we all said at the time that it can't work because you cannot serve those two audiences and BBC World and and the news channel were, were two very different beasts with different ideology a different pace and I I look at what we have now it, it to me is BBC World. It, it, there, there is very little element of of the old BBC News Channel in it. They always say that okay, if there's a very big domestic story, we do have an opt out facility. Yeah, I, if there's a massive. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. Dominic Raab's resignation the other day, I watched, and I don't know how to put it politely. It wasn't brilliant. It was uncomfortable. It looked a bit shambolic. It was not the slick. Uh, let's go straight to Westminster. They were scrabbling around for people. They were interviewing people at home, correspondents. And I'm afraid, I, I, sw- I often switch her over uh, uh, to check what oppositions are doing, but these days I, I tend to stay uh, with the opposition. And uh, this is a moment where Sky and, to some extent, GB News can really uh, grab this, uh, this domestic news agenda uh, and... and because they don't have to cut away to something's happening elsewhere in the world. They have the, they know they can stay on this subject for the national audience to which they're well, broadcasting. All, all, also, their thinking, is this of interest to people in, in Sydney and Bogota or uh, Johannesburg? Their threshold for British news is far, far higher than, obviously, a, a domestic channel would be. So that's not an argument. That's not an argument against a single channel, if you have to do it. It's saying that those running the channel put a greater premium, if you like, on world news and don't give sufficient attention to the news provided for the licence fee payer who pays for them. Which is why I'm saying, it, to me, it looks like world news. And I, I think they've got that wrong. I think, particularly at a time when the BBC is under such pressure when you're talking about an institution which people in their hearts do care about but see daily a lowering of standards, and then you're watching a domestic news channel, and it it is a a domestic news channel overnight coming from Singapore, from Washington, and I'll be pilloried for this, but with no British accents on it, you've got BBC licence payers paying for that. I think there there is going to be a problem with that. And the BBC are arguing, well, if there is a big story, we, we can break away. And we're now, we're now running VTs from, from the regional output, which normally wouldn't have got run. I mean, I think that's nonsense. I, I think it's, it looks very odd at a period when you know the BBC is on the World Channel, they've gone to adverts or whatever. You suddenly see this, this, this report about sheep farming in Wales with no introduction. I don't see that that works. And I hear the BBC boss saying, well, actually, we're doing stories now in the UK that we never did before. That, that's also rubbish because one of my big things when I, when I was there was to try and get more regional output on the network. Because if the BBC stands for anything, it's its regional coverage. And to me, the biggest shame and part, the, the merger of the two news channels 
is an issue. What they're doing to regional television and radio is also a massive issue. And a couple of last questions, if I may. Um, in this situation, the leadership of the BBC is absolutely crucial. What's your view of Richard Sharp's position? Would it be sensible for him to stand down as chairman, that he won't be regarded or is not regarded as sufficiently impartial because of the nature of his appointment? Well, I would say what leadership? You know, the biggest crisis the BBC has had recently was the Gary Lineker affair, a time where you would expect a BBC chairman to come forward and to try and grasp that and get some sense into a situation that was spiralling by the, by the minute. And he was nowhere because he couldn't be, because he is the centre of this controversy, which, as far as I know, I don't know if it's changed in the last hour or so, still has not been sorted. He's still in post. Nothing has changed. He hasn't fulfilled the remit of, of BBC chair as far as I would expect as a BBC licence fee payer, which is sort out a mess that went on for days when it could have been dealt with far more quickly. And it, as you know, Roger, it, it, it's not so much what happens at the BBC, it's how they respond to things that really gets them into the mess. And, and I think the role of the BBC board is, is misunderstood by the general public. They, they don't necessarily understand it's a political appointment. I don't think it works. It cannot work. You've got to have a board which is, we keep using the word independent, but it is beholden to no one who represents the licence fee payer, which, look, looking on the face of it now, you, you couldn't argue. So you think the chairman should go and that any replacement should not be appointed in future by a prime minister? That's what I think, and I, I don't think I'm alone. Then the next question is, well, well, how will it work? Who would you go for? And that's for, certainly for greater minds than mine. But there, there are respected figures in the industry, many of them ex-broadcasters, uh, who understand the problems facing the BBC better than someone who used to work in the city, maybe, might do. But I have to say, Roger, anything is better than this, because this is not working. And finally, Simon, you're not working at the moment. Am I, I correct? Would I be properly describe you as resting? I mean, it seems to me you have a passion for news and for news issues and whatever. And a lot of the public would say, well, what, come on, we want you back. Are you going to come back? Oh, yes. But, but I need someone to want me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing bits and bobs. I'm enjoying writing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm writing articles. My wife works in America a bit during the year, so I, I accompany her. And it, it, that's a fascinating experience to see how their media works. And, and if I get asked about Harry and Meghan one more time, I will scream. But it, it's... Uh, no, I, I, I'm only 61, so I, I think there are a few years in the old dog yet. Uh, and there are a couple of projects that, are, that will be announced soon. I, I'm not lying idle. Uh, I didn't think you would be. Simon McCoy, thank you very much for talking to us. <laughs> thank you, Roger. And that's it for this week. You've sent a few more suggestions to us about our potential rebrand, Roger on public media, media devices and Beeb and more watch. Well, please do support the podcast. We hope we're good value at less than £2 per month. You also get bonus material in the form of a blog from me, which tells you more about the background of the interview of the week. You can sign up easily using the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform where you will also find details of how to contact us on Twitter, Mastodon and by email. And do let us have your thoughts on whom we should interview next. This podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It was a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye.